G'day, welcome back to the Talking Leadership TV podcast series. Our guest today is Dr. Karuna Ramanathan. Karuna has an established track record gained over more than three decades in supporting both leaders and organizations through difficult transformation processes, especially focusing on people and culture change. He's currently the principal consultant for KR Consulting, bringing with him deep experience gained from designing and facilitating more than 2,500 sessions. These have involved nearly 20,000 leaders and managers in more than 500 organizations and business teams. Karuna has more than 2,000 paid coaching hours with senior leaders and nearly 1,000 pro bono coaching hours helping leaders to grow. Today, as a change leadership consultant, he is committed to helping everyone change, especially in these difficult times. In his consulting work, he is committed to results in helping leaders raise, train, and sustain change capability in transforming their organizations. He's increasingly drawn to charitable organizational work around needed change and is prepared to share his expertise as a way of giving back to his community and society more broadly. Our discussion focused on change leadership and leadership issues more generally. Thanks again for supporting the podcast, but enough from me. I'll hand over to Karuna. To start things off, I'd like to ask you what your definition of leadership is. Well, I mean, uh, thank you, Eric. It's a real pleasure and privilege to be here uh, speaking to all, to you and to all listeners. And, and I think it's a really, really important topic these days. It's become so important this last one, two, three years. And simply because the academic definition of leadership uh, is a process of influence. And, and that means you... you you work in a process where you start to influence people. And so leadership development actually is that process. You develop yourself in an organization to be able to influence people. I, I think we've just jumped that a little. So to answer your question, leadership is simply influence today. It's no longer just a process. It's, 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 it, it might still be some parts of it might be a process. Some parts of it is probably a practice. But at the end of the day, it is simply the question on the table for all of us leaders in organizations is whether you have influence. Now, this is becoming disconcerting for most people because the traditional view of leadership is around the few who rise to positions of power by appointment uh, or by, by, you know, by just simply by their knowledge. And depending on where it is, that group has actually started getting a lot bigger. And I'm going to speak a bit about that later on, but I would say leadership is influence, period. Full stop. I've always looked at the, the leadership question around process and what does good process look like? What does bad process look like? And the, that that time centered discussion around leadership in the now versus leadership in the future is a very interesting one and i've i hate to go there with this but covid-19 has given us some idea about what the transitory nature of leadership and that um the ability to pivot quickly and to be um strategically agile and flexible is something that i think has caught out some leaders, not because they don't have the capacity to deal with the issue, but I think COVID as and you know it, it having the dubious distinction of being a pandemic threw everyone for a six, so we all were in a bad position. And it's um, how you dealt with that. So before we go on to the next area of discussion, I just want to get a sense from you, given that um, you've you've been around the traps, you've seen leaders, and, and you've seen good and bad practice. Is it 
is it fair to say at this point that COVID and uh, big events test that idea about the transitory nature of leadership and that that time issue when we're talking about the leadership process? Totally. I I I believe that how we got to this point until just before COVID was largely leadership in organizations determined by work groups and positions in organizational charts and what was clearly visible by appointment. And so basically you would rise to a certain level where you'd go up from supervisor to manager to leader. And, and it would be undisputed that you actually have control over resource and therefore by defect then control default, sorry, by control over people and their work. And the language that was used there, and it's no surprise that you're seeing words like, I mean, frames like KPIs, deliverables, and all that. That's the language of management. And management actually actually is the order required in organizations. So it's pretty terroristic. I mean, when you get to this point, it's a largely manufacturing factory shop floor. And all that's fine because the, 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 the one fundamental assumption there is nothing much would change inside your organization quite so quickly. And certainly you don't expect too much of changes in your environment. That would be like 10 or 20% or 30% of shifts and changes that you might want to make. But for the large part, it would be firm, stable, predictable, uh, not so complex, largely just complicated. And with that frame or that paradigm, you could actually put order and therefore order translated into hierarchical order or bureaucratic order or a mix of both. And most organizations, almost all organizations have, the moment you ask, tell me how you're organized, they show you a organization chart, waterfall, and every one of us you can see, and you can actually pin your position on that. And you would then go to work expecting to do what you were hired for. And you would want to leave work knowing you've done a good day's job. And all that just simply means the sea is calm, the clouds are there, it's not raining, it's all fine, there's no rocking the boat. What have we seen just before the pandemic? There was this unease around digital transformation. Technologies were catching up with us. So there was a lot of organizations trying to ride the digital curve, the digital innovation curve. Then came the pandemic, and now that entire digital transformation piece juxtaposes with all that uncertainty and instability we're seeing out there, new forms of working. So there are external and internal forces that are actually working on organizations right now. And the, and the consequence of that then means the redefinition of norms that we hold around leaders, leadership, leadership development. So it's massive change happening. And you can't tell someone who's been who's been at home for like two years trying to make sense of his or her world that he needs to come back to work and conform to what people are telling him to do or her to do. Because what has happened quite magically, despite the pain, in the two years is you have had to take charge of your life. You have had, we've all had to make choices. We've all had to decide about the commitments and the priorities and the effort that's required. And hey, I'm not going back to work to listen to a manager who's just ordering me around. It's just not respectful. I have my views and my priorities. So there's plenty happening and it all augurs for an expansion of the concept or the mental models we hold around leadership as in position. Leadership now and going back to it is 
simply the extent to which you are able to wish to or need to influence others around you. Wow. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. The, the thing that stands out for me as a running theme in what you've just said, and, and please correct me if I've got this wrong, but the idea about separating what management is and what leadership is, is uh, there's a critical distinction there. And, and that the managerial process, as much as it's necessary, it's about the operational, it's about command and control to an extent. And it's almost like um, competent, not yet competent to get a task out. Whereas leadership's a little bit different. And where I, I personally see the difference, feel free to disagree or extend uh, my thinking here, because that's why we do the, that's why I have the podcast is to get some of the gray matter going on this is, I think there are elements of managerial behavior in any leader, but what distinguishes leadership from management is the people focus. It's a process and it's about creating the why are you here so that your teams um, gel with a, a particular roadmap or pathway to get to an end state, whatever that might look like, which um, I might get your comment on, but that feeds nicely into um, if I can ask you what your definition of change leadership is, if we're getting a bit more granular here. So I might get you to go to part one. What do you think of the management leadership dichotomy? And then going into um, what, explain to us if you can, what change leadership is and how it differs from the normal leadership process, if you can call it that. So let's go to the management leadership dichotomy. I mean, that's been there for the longest time. I mean, and really, uh, I mean, the very term organization requires that we are organized and, and the way that is actually managed is through management. So it's actually a waterfall. At the top of it, you have positional power and authority conferred on a few people. These are the top management who actually would manage and and what do they manage? They manage resources and largely resources constitute people. But if you can offer them clarity as to what they're supposed to be doing and these are the jobs and the tasks, you should be pretty decently there because most people generally aim to be competent, proficient and they get their work done. And all that settles down quite nicely, as I said, in the stability. So the management leadership dichotomy, leadership is a very narrow definition closely associated with positional power responsibilities, maybe some level of joint accountability and differs from organization to organization. That's that management leadership. So I'm so I, I suppose Eric, the point to note here is in that management leadership dichotomy in organizations, you're actually going to have very few people who would be regarded as leaders and the rest of them would be traditionally managers, supervisors. So 30% of an organization is and the rest would be people who simply expect to do their work and go home. And so you use processes and you use practices and systems and you bring some order into the space because that's what organizations are all about. Uh, unorder or disorder is not very well, it's not taken too well by everybody. People become uncomfortable. Then you have this whole notion of change and, and, and you either choose to change, it's called plan change in organizational development circles and it's been there for like 20, 30 years. There's huge literature around this. And so if you need to plan change, you need to deal with group dynamics and you need to do with all that. 
But what we are seeing in the last three years, pandemic and post it, is forced change. I, in my work with my clients and with and in the talks and the workshops that I do, I am struggling to find an organization that can claim it does not need to change. And that includes the Catholic Church, the Buddhist monasteries. They are all changing the dog shelters. I mean, you pick any organized body that actually is trying to seek revenue or profit or any other to survive and it's trying to change uh, and that really now brings into question what do we do with force change and therefore the old paradigm of change management if you go back to Cotter's work and some of the other people have actually cited this very well and spoken well about this before well before we came to this point Actually, change management is simply some set of tools or structures that you put to get some change that you want to do under some level of control. And so it's simply, for example, you're bringing a new system in, a new computer system, and you want to tell everyone, hey, from the 1st of April, this is how this is going to work. You're going to have to go to these three steps. Let me run a half-day briefing session for you. And you can ask any questions that you have. And here's a cheat sheet. And I'd like you to shift to this core process. And we're all familiar with that, you know, SharePoint, the whole lot of stuff that goes on, right? And that has been pretty much the idea of change management, where you could literally run a workshop for a half a day or a day, explain to people the change, explain to them what that change will entail, and explain to them what they need to do to get that going. For most people, it's simply, all right, so I have to do these five steps from this point onwards. And I'm... I don't like it, but I'll need to get used to it because they're going to shut down the other system or whatever. So it's largely processual, it's process driven, and it's quite logical. And there's so many good ways to do that and so many methodologies to do that. It's almost a ripe discussion. I mean, you just have to get change going and good models. And now we come to this other larger definition of change leadership, which is the kind of work that I do and my associates do. And change leadership, Goodness me, it starts with, and it's, I, I mean, it's been said a vision, but I would like to bring that down a little bit. If you, if you as a leader or the bunch of leaders up there believe that you're going to have to do something quite differently, either to grow in a market or to actually survive or whatever that might be, you need to start to shift gears. And when you shift gears, it starts with that entire strategic vision and that strategic clarity. And are you sure? Is this where you want to go? Has it been sanctioned by your board? It's been, it's it's actually got all the, if you don't know what to do, go get a big four, a big six, and they'll help you with it because that's what they do. They have huge content teams. Once that is settled, the change leadership journey starts with unpicking some parts of that strategy into pieces that you could work on within a certain timeline. For most organizations, it's nothing more than 12 months to 18 months. So you could have a grandiose vision about where you want to go in five years' time. I want to expand into Europe. But it then breaks that down into, so what needs to happen in the next six to 12 months? And that is, for a large part, Eric, an idea that can only be translated into the organization through change leadership bringing that idea largely visionary into the organization, examining together with a few other people whom you actually would pull together, influence now, as to how that idea manifests itself in terms of the structural tensions. Maybe there are some things you need to change in the organization. 
if you go and pursue that l and or often the emotional tensions how people perceive things the anxieties that build around these new areas the demographics the used ways of working the all that other associated tensions when you actually do that you start respecting and this is a word that i use often respecting that the system is where it is and how do you then bring the idea into system now uh in change work that's called execution and change leadership therefore is the methodology the behaviors associated with successful execution it is all about influencing people with the required data that's easy to find i mean that's normally by appointment information yeah maybe you need to dig a little harder there because some people actually know quite a number of things and they know a lot of people right knowledge some people have a lots of tacit knowledge and this is where the older mature experts come into play and finally wisdom i mean you don't want to repeat the mistakes others and yourself have made so actually when we run this it's actually a mapping thinking exercise as to who you need to have on your team versus what you're asked to do it's a fundamental shift in the way in which we work ideas into a system. Successful execution, then, I would boldly say, depends and demands change leadership. I hope that's coming out nicely for you, Eric. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I uh, One observation from someone who I'm not working in this area, so it, uh, there's a fascination here for me as to how the bits work together uh, in broad terms is what you're describing a melding of the understanding of the leadership process and a re reimagining of sorts of what um, uh, change management looks like is that is that where you is that how these things have combined or is it a little broader than that and I'm not it, I'm, I'm definitely not asking to be uh, a smart aleck I'm trying to get my head around this no I, no I get the elements. I'm just trying to think how, what was the glue so, that brought them together? Ah, great question. So change management aside, there's always going to be room for change management, right? Because you're always going to be bringing new systems to replace old ones. You're going to be bringing, you're going to be creating new processes. You're going to be buying new tools, whatever that might be. All right. There's always space for change management. I think it does sit a little bit in the background in transformation. The danger is in assuming that the, the methodologies associated with change management would actually work in change and execution of difficult work. Now, where the tweak has probably happened is if you really think about it, the people at the top never drive change. Their job is to figure out what needs to change for the organization to survive or to be game-changing. I've, I've given up trying to discuss senior leaders i just said i think i said it in another podcast hey hey you know what if your senior leaders can't cut it you just need to get new ones you know because 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 there's really the demand is that they are able to strategically execute whatever i mean strategically think through whatever and 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 these good people they actually go to good schools they are all tried and tested and no one's going to appoint anyone as a c-suite unless he or she is proven or tested i mean if it's a family business it's quite different what has what the implications of what I'm saying is simply a seismic shift that a lot of us still refuse to accept, which is now managers will have to execute the change. 
And therefore, you have to have managers becoming leaders to be able to influence people. And that is not DNA stuff. Look, managers did not expect that. Managers expected to actually look after just the work and maybe some parts of the people, right? Or the problem people. But now managers have to influence and they need to do three things. I mean, they need to become adaptive team leaders and still function in their functionality. So they still sit in function because you're not going to reorganize everyone. But when they deal with new and difficult work, they need to gonna have to ask, them, hang on, wait a minute. Is this a little complex? I don't have enough data, information, knowledge, or wisdom. And do I really, I, I might have to start working with my peers and I don't really like her from something that happened two years ago, but professionally, I'm gonna have to learn to work with her. I'm learned to work across. I need to co-lead some project. Maybe there's a 30% or 40% complexity in here. Maybe it's just uncertain. And then I need to work with people I like or don't like. And more importantly, the more complex the change idea as it gets into system, it invariably requires that we learn on the spot. So there's a fair bit of the terminal uses team learning. How do you gain insights, gain lessons, build your observations and go forward with some confidence that you are actually building and scaffolding forward? That's a huge ask of a manager, Eric. I mean, I totally empathize with the middle core because they've often been blamed for the inactivity in change. But I would tell you that no manager is going to be able to do this quite so intuitively. I mean, it's just not in school and it's certainly not in practice. So we have a huge task ahead to actually help our managers become leaders. Hope that makes sense. No, that, that very much so. I've been thinking about what you've just discussed for a little while now, um, it took me a little bit to get to the point where I can articulate this in a way that makes some sense, but you actually beat me to the punch with what you said, because I, I, I think the future of uh, the leadership process, if we're going to call it that, is at the managerial level, we need to start thinking about how do you inculcate a leadership culture amongst um potentially technical experts that have become managers that don't necessarily see their role as a leadership role. And I think what what you do, what you've done in this conversation is if you add a layer of the organisation needs to change or there's a disruption to the organisation, you if, if the implementation bit, if I'm hearing you right, if that is driven at the managerial level and not so much at the senior uh, leadership level, then you would hope that that managerial level has those skill sets that you need from a leadership perspective. I, I get where you're going with this. Um, I think if you ran the ruler over organizations of, of many types and many settings, not just for profit, but in the volunteer space or in the government sector, I think this is an ongoing discussion because the, the feedback that I'm getting, and I, I love your feedback on this, um, the feedback that I'm getting from my conversations around leadership is that we are still inclined in some organizational settings, not all, to tap the person who's been there the longest, has a certain level of technical skill, and suddenly they have to morph from a technocrat, operations-focused person to a leadership role very quickly. And we assume that they have the knowledge, skills, and abilities to be able to do that in an adaptive way. And I think making that assumption is is fertile ground for things to go wrong. Does that does that 
uh, make sense to you? Is that is that too much of a stretch? Totally. I, 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 we actually do this with our clients. I mean, I, I tell them that you need to, you need to look at all your managers and you need, and you need to have your best players remain the best players. And what do I mean by that? In every organization, there are functional specialists and, and they, they have a lot of tacit knowledge. You're going to have to rely on them. They have wisdom. They, they actually are people who do very narrow, narrow focus things really well. And 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 that and that performance management system has to guard and retain them so that they feel that their worth to the organization is their knowledge, not their managerial skills. We call them deep specialists, right? Uh, the deep smarts, the deep specials, and there's lots of stuff written over that. Now, is that is that a major part of the organization? Unlikely, unless you're a consulting house, or may, even not, maybe even a consulting house. Maybe you're a maybe you're an engineering firm that's really well known in something, and you might have several people like this. Maybe I, we see this in oil and gas, where you actually have. Uh, people who went and built those rigs actually now in their 60s and you want to make sure you retain them. We see this in, we see in healthcare. Uh, there was a very famous British example about 20 over years ago that suggested that there was a there was a health secretary that came in and started firing all the matrons in the health service in the UK. And, and six months later, he was fired and he brought the matrons back. Because, because you really need people who really know the ins and outs of the system. There's another example of how uh, there's this chap sitting in a pub and he's in his 70s and, and I think the London Underground had some problems and he went looking for him. And he, I mean, after about a couple of pints, he actually goes out and he actually points, this is where the leak is, is drill here. So, so there's many beautiful examples like that. So my point is in every organization that's been around for a considerable number of years, you are going to find people who actually know a lot more than they can tell. And, and you need to watch them because the last thing you want to do with these good people is to put them through that, that horizontal stretching exercise that we call adaptive. And they're not going to take too well to that because, hey, wait a minute, I've been at this for 30 years and you're asking me to ask other people and work with other people? No, that's not going to work. Luckily enough, in our work with clients, we believe that this is a minority that you can literally map, I mean, quite logically. Who's been there? What are they good for? What do people say they're good for? But there is a significant number of managers, and that actually can be actually moderated based on the pace of the transformation, who will quickly need to gain new awareness and sensibilities, new skills and abilities, and eventually new attitudes and beliefs about how work gets done, and counter to how performance gets measured in organizations. Because the one thing, Eric, that's not seeming to move fast enough for good people is you tell me to work with other people, but you know what? When it comes to appraisal, you still pretty much judge what I did. And so therefore, I will default to what I will do. And therefore, I will not work with other people as a priority. And so here's the other problem that's facing organizations. We don't have as much as a lot has been said about what we should be doing about this in LinkedIn and all the other sites. There isn't a very acceptable way, a decent way of how we should be measuring collective or team performance. It's a really difficult area. I think Microsoft has tried it and they're having their challenges. Uh, they've gone to 3017. It's quite well publicized. They threw out the bell curve, but a lot of organizations are still relying on that quota, the bell, the standard deviations, the uh, 
the large C group, you know, and that pisses people off. I mean, because if I'm going to stretch out of my comfort zone, I expect to be acknowledged extrinsically. That's that's where this lies. Yeah, that's um that that opens up this conversation to a whole lot of rabbit holes. Uh, one one, <laughs> <laughs> one one thing that stands out in what you've just said, and and it's um it's given me some food for thought there around the irony that. Uh, management uh, leadership literature really does talk about the primacy of teams. Yet, um, if if your contention is we don't know how to acknowledge, remunerate, um, sing the praises of our teams, what's in it for the person in the team? And um, I keep coming back to this thought again. This is purely speculative on my part that human beings in teams will have a thought process on occasion that for my my 10% extra effort or more effort from, from me, what is going to be the outcome for me at the end of the process in terms of recognition? And it doesn't always necessarily mean money. Um, and where I have some confidence in saying that is particularly with um, millennials and younger generations coming through in the workforce a basic recognition of effort and contribution to the organization can be enough to keep people committed to the goals of the organization. Yet those expectations may not marry up with the reality of the the world of work. And, and by the sounds of it, you've encountered organizations that may not have a handle on how those two worlds might collide. And, and where I see fallout there is you'll lose good new people potentially but you really don't want to lose those that have got that corporate knowledge that have been in the place for any length of time. And that uh, this came up in some discussions I've had in previous podcasts that I, well, I can share with you here, that to what extent do we value the wisdom and the um, the older workforce that we've got there about their contribution to how the place operates? And that, that, um, as a leadership challenge is huge because if you lose that good core of of people that understand how the place works inside and out, you're going to have problems. And you just mentioned those engineers, those people that worked on oil rigs that are now in their 60s and 70s. When they move on to the next world and they're at peace and they don't have to worry about the goddamn world of work, what are we going to do about their corporate knowledge? How can you capture that in a way that doesn't look like you're just trying to um, drain their brains of information without actually val valuing the um, the not just the length of time in a role, but how they've helped to grow the organization in which they're in. And the, these are some meta conversations, but I guess you've brought them out in what you've just said, and it, it makes for the the leadership process that much more challenging and that much more nuanced um is that is that what you're experiencing or have i um uh totally. too long a bow totally i mean I, I i regularly have conversations with senior leaders and they tell me that you know we 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 went into a bit of a crisis and basically this is what happened and you know we should have caught it and you know someone actually said we needed to pay attention that someone has someone with 32 years of service and and hey, wait a minute. I mean, like years ago, I remember I was in I was in uh, I was in Tel Aviv uh, and and uh, just on some work, and uh, I'd actually stepped out, uh, and and uh, there was this little cigarette uh, space where people actually had a smoke, and 
and uh, there's this lady, and 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 she looked like she was in her fifties, right? And so so, just fifties. And I said, wow, you know, I mean, like you must have worked here for a long time. And she said, yeah, forty years. And I said, okay. So I I started pranking, right? Forty years, geez, you must be in your sixties. And I said, so what what kind of work have you done? And she said, I've just done the same thing for the last forty years. And she coolly says that. I mean, I've just run, run the same thing for the last 40 years. So we go back into the room after that that smoke. And I sit down and there's like about 15 people in the room and she walks in and she she's, goes to the back and then she's introduced as the expert in that frame. Okay. The point that I took away from this, and, and this is actually this is actually part of my PhD. I mean, we studied this. I studied this for years. Intuitive tacit knowledge does not arise simply by discussion. It is triggered by situation. So you're going to have, the more things become complex, you're going to have many situations where there are people who would actually, would actually be able to help us, right? The issue is, are we creating the conditions for that to happen? Or are we using leadership position to dumb that down? Now, of course, Amy Edmondson calls that psychological safety, but let's just... Let's just unpack that a little. The, the rate of change that we are facing is probably directly proportional to the expertise and wisdom we have in our organization. So if you're not prepared to work that as a matter of process or by design, then you're, and, and I say that because that's what we teach managers to do. When you become adaptive team leaders, your focus is not on solving the problem. It is on sense making, and sense making is one of my good friends. I have actually I, this belongs to him, and I'll just acknowledge that. It's simply the art of framing problems, and when you can frame problems together, somewhere along the line, someone's gonna give you that insight, either by data, which you have to probe and find out, but, or by wisdom, which you have sensed and failed before, and and that's so powerful, and. So we really need to, and again, the cardinal word I'll go back to here is we really need to start thinking about how we respect each and every individual in organizations. Instead of trying to create this sense of belonging, how about we try to define what fulfillment might mean to each and every individual? Yeah, that's um, there's a scary amount of difference there because um, one one thing that that sticks out in my mind and. I, I don't know what the solution is. I, I, it's easy enough to spot a problem. It's a lot harder to find a solution for it, but here goes. I, 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 I get the sense that in some organizations, the ability of leaders to give up some of that position power and allow people to be an active participant in strategic thinking in the thought processes is sometimes um, not as good as it could be. And I'm, I'm a big believer in the more brains you've got in that room and uh, the better. And if some of those brains have been around this earth a lot longer and has spent a considerable part of their adult life working in that organization, they will have nuggets of, of wisdom, as you've said multiple times, and uh, insights that you might not have. That doesn't mean you can't, generate those insights but at a time when um, timing matters in business and you need to get decisions made in certain strategic time frames drawing on the wisdom of others seems to be intuitively the right way to go but does it actually happen that way 
on the shop floor, I, I would suggest that not all the time. I, I can't say that it, it it doesn't ever happen, but I, I I think when we're talking about leadership, not only are the people involved key to the process, you've got people leading the process and human beings are fallible. Um, we don't always see the um the 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 trees in the forest and uh it's there can be some difficulties there and, and you've you've um you've outlined what some of those are and I, I guess when you're engaging in the process like you're talking about um the ability to draw on others as part of your thinking process in an organization has some demands on a leader and puts some demands on those that are led and if you don't want to give up your positional power to allow others to help you create value in the business. That's one obstacle. But if you don't create as a leader, the environment to allow people to feel, um, I hate using the term, but psychologically safe to contribute, you know, give them that safe space. I, I hate that terminology, but give them the, <laughs> give them the chance to talk and be heard. Um, there, there could be so much more that you could do in the business. Now I'm, I'm, I can say this in the comfort that I'm not advising someone at this point about this, but I'm just, I'm drawing on what I'm hearing and learning from others. Can I get your view on that? Am, am I on the right track with this or have I gone off course a little bit? Years ago, I, I, I actually had the opportunity to write a little bit about this. And I recall I said that there is a fundamental distinction between the decision-taking process and the decision-making process if you are a leader in a positional authority, accountability starts and stops with you, you would have to take a decision. But that does not mean that you confuse that with how that decision is made. Now, the algorithm for decision making is the level of complexity inherent in the situation that warrants taking multiple perspectives. And there's a lot of science behind it. For example, one of the most powerful models here is Dave Snowden's Kinefin model. And I mean, it's, it's really intriguing stuff, right? But it's really practical as well, because do I know enough? And if I don't know enough, then is someone here who's going to be able to help me? And if we all say that we just know a bit, but not enough, hey, wait a minute, how about we actually bring the system into the room and start getting multiple perspectives on it? before we run away with this with this simplistic notion that I know enough, I don't want to deal with the complexity. Let's justify that on the basis of time and let's just stomp our ground. So, so I would differentiate between decision-making and decision-taking. The making is a process, the taking is a responsibility. It is, it is, it is accountable in position. I hope that helps. No, it really does. Um, let me ask you this, the, um, if, if you'll indulge me a little, we are now entering that post-COVID phase of the pandemic. Um, organizations are coming back to whatever normal might look like now. Can I ask, to what extent do you believe um, the pandemic influenced leadership practice? Uh, maybe the good, the bad, and the ugly, according to your experiences, if you can. I think it's simply amplified. Uh, for for a start, I think there are more of us that have been forced leaders. I would use the term forced leaders. We've we've just become leaders. We've 
we've had to rethink our lives. We've had to rethink our practices, our processes. We've had to rethink mostly our choices and commitments and the risk and the effort that's associated with it. So for one thing, that has happened. For second, we now believe actually that we have, and you see this in a hybrid and remote and a work from home and all that drama that's going on now and the quiet quitting and the unhappiness. We, we all now, most of us believe that we are entitled to make those choices for ourselves. And this is providing or creating tons of problems for organizations that still require their people come back, do work as they are ordered to, sit in three-hour meetings. I cannot sit in a 30, 40-minute meeting. I mean, can you spare everyone the BS and just, just, just get going, right? And, and, and if you look at it from a macro perspective, Eric, I mean, we are not, I don't know about you, but I no longer watch YouTube as much as I used to. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm into TikTok, right? It's the 30 second message. So there's a immediacy, there's attention deficit, there's attention capacities. And there's a lot going on here that organizational leaders need to figure out. Now, and then when you look at all these wonderful stories and images of people moving to Bali and still being able to do their work with 5G internet connectivity, I think we need to be, again, I'm going back to this term, respectful of choices people can make. And if they really want to work with you, the question is no longer traditional frames like employer of choice, sense of belonging, la la and yabada. It is about fulfillment. What does that mean to each and every individual? What is negotiable? What is non-negotiable? And what is largely discretionary? And that conversation is a leadership conversation on both ends. So post-COVID, I believe that there's this huge influx some of them not aware but they're all we are all leaders and we are all having to make those choices and trade-offs and concern so th there's a lots and lots of wonderful stories of people actually doing things differently hey i don't want to do this you know i don't no longer need to do this i'm making some choices that's what's fundamental for organizations it simply means there are a lot more quiet leaders walking around than managers would be comfortable with regarding them you know that that makes a lot of sense and what what um what i can add here if if, if you'll allow me is uh part of my process to try and understand what le leadership means for me is um i interviewed and had discussions with people that were ex-military or serving in the australian military and in the united kingdom and what um, the some of the nuggets of gold that I got from those discussions is in how they train their leaders is to be able to work a level above your station and understand what a level below you means and to be that practical generalist but still be able to fill a leadership role. I I would, you know, the the beneficial elements of that in the corporate sense is if you can imagine if your whole workforce has a leadership mindset that we need to fill gaps when we need to, we're listened to, we can um, participate in the um, the pathway that the organization's going, this can only add strength to what you're doing in the leadership function. Now, that that's making a huge assumption that um, a good chunk of your workforce wants that responsibility because there will be, and, and you, you made it very clear, and I think it's a good point that, some people go to work for the nine to five, it pays the bills and they go home. That's all they want to know. There's nothing wrong with that. But for those that want to develop uh, their gray matter beyond 
the process element of their job or the the one element that they might contribute to a larger project these are the people you want to encourage to be the thinkers and to have the space to do that in a in a constructive way i don't mean sitting in an office and having 100 people come at you with an idea every other minute that's not you know i don't know what you mean by i'm um, using your time productively in that sense but um fundamentally i have the same I think we share the same view that things are changing and um, in some respects it's amplified good and bad practice and in some respects it's given people opportunities to do things better because not all businesses or organizations in, in whether you're profit or not for profit um, got hit in the same way through COVID I think in some people it amplified their strengths as leaders and in others it really demonstrated I wouldn't use the word shortcomings. I would say a lack of training or capability building in that person, not necessarily through any fault of their own. Because I think, again, if you make the assumption tapping an expert in your business on the shoulder and saying you are now going to take a leadership role without any bridging training or any, or even asking them the most basic question, do you want to lead people? I think we make huge mistakes in assuming that. Oh yeah, work, totally, yeah? <laughs> totally, totally. So you need to recognize that adaptive team leaders uh, are not all your managers. Uh, you just have to put some design into it. And in a in a context of a transformation, it is uh, consultants like us. We actually get in there and we actually kind of look at what might be needed in terms of work. And if these people, these good people, are going to be challenged by the change then you might want to get that going, but you also need to preserve that layer. I call it a 30% layer in an organization where you have good people being there for longest time. They're good managers. They know their work. Their currency is not changed. Their currency is knowledge and wisdom. And they're the go-to people and there's go-to at every organization. They're go-to people in every organization, right? So we need to be a little bit more sanguine about this. I mean, you don't want to put everyone through this. You don't want to drag the entire, you don't want to uproot everyone because it's going to create chaos. But there needs to be a little bit more thinking in terms of what you need to do, how fast you want to go and who's likely to be the most affected and get that going. And I think that's the respectful, responsible thing to do to try to help the right people and not all people. Yeah, agreed. Um, would you know we? I would love to have a discussion with you at some stage around how do you pick those right people? What what's your criteria? And <laughs> um, there, there's always and and I, this is the the joy. This is a joy for me about talking about the leadership process. Is sometimes you it's a gut instinct of which you're going on. I would suggest that maybe some structure to that is necessary, but um, some of the best. And most effectively, as I've ever met, combine the gut feel with a process and they generally get good outcomes. And even if there is a mistake or there's an issue that comes up, you look at them as learning opportunities rather than something catastrophic. And um, I, <laughs> it's taken me a long time to process this in my own mind, but I'm of the school and uh, I've tried to get this out of my head that Sometimes your my tendency is to go, well, what's the most catastrophic outcome and how do I avoid that when really the catastrophic outcome is probably not the most likely, but it's one of many that can happen and the ability to get some of that fog out of your head and deal with what's 
in the now is important. Um, and you've made that pretty clear <laughs> to, today. Um, and it, it, it seems that um, this is a work in progress and I'm, I'm for not one second assuming that there's not enough goodwill or even that strategic thought amongst leaders that, that they need to come to grips with this in a big, bad way. But um, what are, why I think there are many consultants and experts working in this space is that um, they don't know, they don't have the how, they don't have the process. They know that they need to do it, but not necessarily the roadmap. And um, I think once they get to that point of realisation, they reach out and want assistance. And obviously they're the organisations that you're, uh, dealing with let, let me ask I, I don't want you to go before at least I can ask you this what is the most common form of resistance that you see amongst leaders to um, embracing the change process or at least recognizing that something needs to change as well that's probably six and this is very, very uh, really established work I mean uh, this is a brilliant piece and it's called COVID. you can get it up on the internet covert processes in organizations there are six factors so a lot of it deals with the mental models and the politics and the insecurities that are associated with the perceived loss of power and 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 that power is earned and 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 it's not easy to give away and 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 success is defined largely in organizations and well it's just the way it is by how much power you have not how much influence you have. And the reality of change is influence is not power. So the, the resistance we get to see, I mean, people, consultants like me, it starts off pretty okay. There's a lot of lip service to this. There's a lot of agreement. There's a lot of alignment. But the moment you start growing the collective, you need to acceptance and action. And that's where you find the resistance is largely covert. So it's, it's, it's I, I, I actually uh, dismiss the terms like, lack of buy-in from the middle, the frozen middle. I say, well, take a good look at the at, at the top and ask yourselves whether you are sufficiently unfreezing your mental processes. And that's not easy. So we actually do a fair bit of senior leader coaching as well to guide good people through the next steps that they need to take. And that becomes necessary. It, it doesn't happen on one's own volition. I mean, like it just doesn't sit too well. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Look, let me ask you, and this is a... a a question I ask in all of my podcasts. The nature versus nurture question for you, um, are leaders born or are they made? I I used to think that having come from a, a, a quite a quite a, uh, a defined leadership development uh, uh, background, I used to hold the thought that you could train everyone to be a leader and so therefore you could nurture them. But these days, I think that I'm I'm going even beyond that. I'm 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 beginning to realize that everyone is a leader, and that would mean mean that leaders are born. And, and simply, Eric, it simply means if you enter a choice relationship, you have a partner, you have children, you have elderly parents, you are making choices that would require commitments, and by that very act, you are a leader. And and then you come to work and there's this seemingly artificial construct of organization that forces us to behave in certain mandated ways. And we might dump that down, but I think inside all of us is a leader. And that kind of, that came out a bit in that COVID. And I, I still hold on to the view that these tensions that we are seeing with all these new work arrangements and the uneasiness is actually the fact that we are actually leaders. And 
Why would you not respect that? Why would you not allow me that choice? Why would you not give it some thought as to what my views are on this? So, so to answer that question, I believe all of us are leaders. Men, women, we were born leaders. I, I just the question as to how much of that translates into work and makes us successful is a completely different. Yeah, very good. That's an interesting answer. Um, I, I like the um the philosophy that that underpins that we're all leaders or we're all capable of engaging as leaders in a process. It's um and you come back to something and and this may be a, a good focal point for another discussion with yourself is the um the issue of choice when it comes to leadership you can choose to be a leader or you can choose not to be and i think in organizations when you come in if you've made the very tangible decision that this is my 9 to 5 it pays my bills and that's it it's going to be very difficult to move the dial a little bit but there are others, and I can remember back to my own start in my career that I chased position, I chased the moving up the ladder, um, but I never really asked myself why. And that's, <laughs> I think that part of the philosophy uh, asking the why is important because someone a lot, um, a lot more wise than myself said, when you recruit for leaders, or even if you're looking at them internally, be careful of the ones that really want to be a leader because maybe they're not the right people <laughs> to take on for for lots of different ways. I see you smiling there and, and there's I think there's some truth to it, but there are some really good people that just want the chance to take on responsibility, not position power, as you've stated, but more the ability to have a go and bring people along with them. And that's an influence discussion rather than, a power position discussion and, and you've made that um you've made that clear I, I, this has been a really good chat but before we go let me ask you this if you could get the crystal ball and talk to a a 20 year old version of yourself what would you say to yourself about what makes for an effective leader i i always uh i used to think that courage would be really important uh, the courage to chase, to do what's right, to do a whole lot of stuff. But these days, I'm settling on the word respect. Respect everybody and respect yourself. And do not allow anyone to damn that down for you. And do not allow others to disrespect others. And I think that is singularly most important for a leader to grow his or her influence. A respectful person would be able to practice empathy and demonstrate humility. A lot of that is lacking. Aruna, this has been an absolutely fantastic discussion. Thank you for giving me your time. It's been a real privilege, Eric. Thank you, though. Our just went right past. It was a really good conversation. Thank you for that. That concludes our podcast. I'd like to thank Karuna for his time and insights on the leadership topic, particularly when it comes to change leadership. As always, thank you for following the podcast. Our next guest is Fiona Passantino, who will be talking to us around the topic area of lessons learned from mythology and post-COVID communication from a leadership point of view. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please drop a like and subscribe if you can to support us and help the channel to grow. Have a good day, rest of your week, and we'll catch everyone on the next episode of Talking Leadership TV.